Peter Bergman, an alias for a man unknown to the world, was a tragic enigma. His seemingly painful and hard-cut life was cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved death in the hours leading up to June 16, 2009, leaving all who followed the John Doe case in County Sligo, Ireland, grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the unidentified profile of Peter Bergman and the unexplainable backstory to his life before he washed ashore Roses Point Beach. Unlike most of the incidents investigated by cold case detective, Peter Bergman's anonymous anomaly leaves us without a victim, at least one with an identity or known history. It's quite the peculiar case, instead of looking for someone whose life was taken from them by an unknown assailant, or someone who went missing without a trace. We are attempting to determine a human being's existence before their mystery even began. Therefore, a complete profile of a victim is mostly unavailable, leaving us with only shaky eyewitness observation and theoretical characterization. It's widely accepted that Peter Bergman, while ended up in Ireland, was not originally from the country, but rather a visitor from either Germany or Austria. His surname was unique in that it hinted at a German origin, but included a second N at the beginning, differing from the traditional spelling of Bergman. Sadly, it's the only name received on the trail he left in his few days in Sligo, as he never produced proper identification to further clarify his country of residence or legal birth name. However, a few people who supposedly ran in with Peter claimed he spoke with an Austrian or German accent, with one taxi driver confidently stating Peter admitted he was of Austrian descent. This information could have been a disguise when considering how much uncertainty shrouds the case but nevertheless, it at least gives us a vague background to place Peter Bergman in prior to his stroll along Rose's Point. Further, eyewitness testimony really hit home the fact that Peter wore business attire, even up until his last sighting on the night of June 15th. A few beachgoers remember seeing Peter wading in shallow water with his trousers rolled up to his knees, but not abandoning his formal clothing. CCTV captured similar appearances always displaying the man wearing a black jacket, chino slacks, and black shoes. His shoulder bag seemed like one of a man with pedigree, and his apparent flow of cash meant he came from a place with at least a little money. Again, could it have been part of a ruse or fake-out? Absolutely. But it's still likely Peter Bergman was a respected, well-kept individual wherever he came from. What can be confirmed through autopsy is that Peter Bergman was a gravely sick man possibly outside of his own knowledge. The medical examiner found Peter had terminal prostate cancer that had spread throughout his lungs and inside his bones. While Peter could have been unaware, his body certainly would have been deteriorating. In fact, Peter's cause of death was ruled a heart attack, not drowning, so the rest of Peter's organs were dwindling towards failure anyway. 
Heart issues aside, the man might have known the end was near, as the medical examiner also claimed he was probably weeks away from death. If so, it's hard to fathom the emotions one faces when coming to terms with mortality and a looming demise. Unquestionably, Peter Bergman was sick, and a tragic case of someone disappearing as a result of either the sickness itself, or the psychological effects it had on both he and those who knew him. Maybe those in question are aware and content with Peter's anonymous fate, but if not, his disappearance and John Doe discovery is as tragic as ever. Regardless of who he was, where he came from, or what impact the cancer had on his physical and emotional health, Peter Bergman was a human being with a human story, and in case there are those out there desperate to know what the ending to the story was, he deserves a chance to be shared with the world starting with his first known point as a figure without a name, rhyme or reason to his sudden arrival in Sligo Island. Peter Bergman's footprints began on Friday, June 12, 2009 in Derry Island between the hours of 2.30 and 4 in the afternoon. He is first seen at the Ulster Bus Depot, described as a skinny yet tall gentleman, sporting glasses and short grey hair. He wears a black leather jacket and carries two items of interest, a soft hold bag by the straps and a carry-on styled bag hanging on his shoulder. About two hours later, at 6.28pm, Peter is captured exiting a bus at the Sligo bus station in Sligo Island. Minutes later, Peter catches a cab for a hotel, asking the driver for a cheap lodging. They first try the Krushkinland guesthouse on Connolly Street, but find no vacancy. They then end up on Key Street at the Sligo City Hotel, where Peter departs the vehicle. At 6.52pm, CCTV footage captures Peter entering the lobby of the Sligo City Hotel. He checks in with a receptionist and pays in cash for a single occupancy room that includes breakfast for £65. During this interaction, Peter gives the front desk no official identification records and uses his alias of Peter Bergman for the first time. There are no issues with the hotel staff and they assign him room 705. Over the next 24 hours and throughout the ensuing weekend, Peter is captured on the hotel's CCTV and security footage around Sligo, walking out of the hotel, with purple plastic bags in hand, stuffed with unknown contents. He is never recorded actually disposing of the bag's contents, and is taped returning to Sligo City Hotel empty-handed. The same incident repeats 13 times in all. On Saturday morning at 10.49am, Peter walks into the general post office in Sligo, and purchases eight stamps. When considering the price of stamps in 2009, a 55p stamp would have provided local delivery in Ireland. Peter's 82 pence stamps are expensive enough to allow delivery anywhere in the world, with the idea the stamps were used on regular envelopes. The fate of the stamps is unknown from this point forward. The following day, on Sunday, June 14th, between 11 and 11.30 a.m., Peter leaves Sligo City Hotel and hails another taxi cab. He is met by driver Gerald Higgins, who claims Peter is chatty, carries a map, and withholds a gold tooth in the back of his mouth. 
Peter asks Jared about a quiet beach in the area for swimming, and Jared recommends Roses Point Beach. The two men drive around, Jared shows off the beach and drops Peter back off at the bus station. Another day passes by, and Monday June 15th arrives, what would later be proven to be the final day of Peter Bergman's mysterious journey across Ireland. At 1.06 in the afternoon, Peter checks out the Sligo City Hotel and returns the 705 room key. He walks out in a pale blue long sleeve shirt, black trousers and a black jacket. He carries the same two black bags he carried in on June 12th, plus one more purple plastic bag. A half hour later, around 1.30pm, CCTV captures Peter arriving at the bus station, sans the black holdall bag. At 1.38pm, Peter orders a sandwich and cappuccino from the bus station cafe. He eats his meal without speaking to anyone else, but is seen writing something on a piece of paper. He reads whatever it is he wrote, tears up the slip, and throws it away in a nearby trash can. Somewhere over the next 40 minutes, Peter runs into Vincent Dunbar, the depot inspector at the Sligo bus station, and asks him about the daily bus routes. Vincent gives him the information for the Roses Point schedule, but finds Peter to be dressed quite odd for a trip to the waterside, saying he looked like he was on his way to meet someone for business. Then at 2.40pm, Peter boards one of the three buses in service to Roses Point Beach. The bus drops off Peter and other passengers at around 3pm outside Yeats Country Hotel. Peter avoids the building and heads to the beach. One hour later, at 4pm, Peter is spotted by a beachgoer hanging around with a black carry-on bag slung over his shoulder. Fast forward another hour, at 5pm, Peter is seen by more passers-by at the yacht club, a section of Roses Point referred to as First Beach by the locals. Evening turns to dusk, and at 9.10pm, two women have a visual of Peter and claim he is carrying something discreet and unidentifiable. 20 minutes go by, and at 9.30pm, there's another sighting of Peter, this one by couple, Diamin and Paula Lahif, as they watch the sunset. They make out a tall, thin man, with his trousers rolled up to his knees, meandering around the beach, as the sun sets and casts him in a shadowy silhouette as he crosses their line of sight. Diamon Lahif says it seems like the man is performing a sort of bizarre ritual, intentional in his movements from right to left, as if he has never waded through shallow water. About an hour later at 10.30pm, Peter is seen once more, still with a plastic bag, this time wearing his glasses. A similar sighting was reported a half hour later at 11pm, and again in 10 minutes, as someone claims to spot Peter sitting on a beach overlooking First Beach at 11.10pm. Just before the clock strikes midnight at 11.50, Peter is seen alive for the final time, walking along the shore, a plastic bag in hand, only 30 minutes away from high tide. The next morning at 6.45am, early riser runners Arthur and Brian Kinsella stumble upon a lifeless body on a slipway of the beach, near some rock formations. They quickly realise the dire situation and call authorities. They say a prayer as they wait for police and medical personnel to arrive. The police show up on scene, and at 8.10am on Tuesday, June 16th, Dr. McGowan pronounces Peter Bergman dead. Over the next five months, and the better part of a decade, investigators search endlessly for a scrap of evidence or supplemental clue to help pinpoint the identity 
of the man who washed up on Roses Point Beach. They scour the timeline of those few days in June to pick up on a scent, to scrape whatever hint they can out of a dry, empty case file. While theories are built, sorted and tossed out, one thing remains true. Peter Bergman has a past, a mystery unlike most cases Sligo Island and the world at large has ever grappled with. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. In a surge that's bore, very little fruit in solving Peter Bergman's missing identity, there is one key artifact worthy of closer inspection, that while it still asks more questions than proves answers, it at least gives us something to chew on and analyse rather than blindly assume. Throughout the three days Peter spent in Sligo Island, CCTV cameras both around the hotel and downtown Sligo recorded Peter seemingly live a normal stay at a normal lodging. He kept to himself, but was apparently polite, calm, and professional. However, as the weekend pressed on, CCTV began capturing a strange action by Peter, one that makes little sense on a first viewing. As Peter went in and out of the hotel, and meandered around Sligo, he carried with him a purple plastic bag, obviously filled, yet unfortunately, too covered to be discerned. The cameras picked up this uncharacteristic errand 13 times in all, each time giving a visual of Peter walking out of the hotel. Yet in a weird twist, CCTV was never able to follow Peter to his probable multiple destinations. Thus the fate of the purple bags and their mysterious contents was never decided. Some believe Peter had a single purple bag and simply folded it up and stuck it in his pocket before returning. Some believe Peter had a premeditated stock of bags with a specific amount of things he wanted to distribute or throw away around the city. So what could have exactly been in those purple sacks? Police believe it was personal items belonging to Peter, a generalized term without much meaning. Other amateur sleuths think the purple bags may have contained contraband and required multiple trips to effectively separate whatever Peter was getting rid of such as drugs or something more sinister. Whatever it was, we can all agree that Peter did not want these contents to be found. He avoided CCTV at each final destination, a clear indication Peter knew where the cameras were and where he could go without being tracked. He was careful and calculated, making the footage of Peter carrying those plastic bags around Sligo not only a major case point, but a haunting, surreal viewing experience. When attempting to put together the pieces of Peter Bergman's puzzle, the biggest question remains, who was the unidentified man? While it can be safely concluded Peter was of Austrian descent, judging by his alias and accent, 
the rest is as good as coded. Some theorists believe the man claiming to be Peter Bergman was a German or Austrian government agent, on the run and hoping to escape his past in Ireland. Others wonder if Peter was a criminal on the run. A few think Peter could have simply been an old, dying man seeking peace before certain death. The biggest mystery without the mystery of Peter's ethnicity is the address he left at Sligo City's hotel front desk while checking in. The location was Einstetterson 15 4472 Vienna, Austria. However, when investigators mapped out the area, they found the address doesn't actually exist, and the nearest coordinates led them to a vacant lot in Vienna. So where did Peter get the idea to leave such a weird, non-existent place of residence? Obviously, he could have just made it up on the spot, using a random sequence of names and numbers. Yet some followers of the case think there is more meaning to the address. They think the numbers could be correct, but maybe that the street name was faked. Others believe the address did exist at one point, and played a role in whatever life Peter Bergman was living. And because it was torn down or removed, he could use it quickly from the top of his head, and be confident that it wouldn't trace back to his true identity. How else would someone know something so specific to Austria if they weren't familiar with the area beforehand? It's an odd addition to the Peter Bergman puzzle, and may have no significance at all. On the flip side, it's quite possible Peter wasn't German or Austrian at all. Investigators point to the immense amounts of planning that seemed to go into the entire ordeal, and figure Peter's specificity in choosing his name could have been to tie in with a fake accent, disguise himself even further, this would put authorities on a wild goose chase throughout Europe, looking closer at German area residents. Austria or not, Peter Bergman was a man with intention, with a plan, and an unparalleled execution. The other important questions to consider, why was Peter carrying out such an extensive, effective plan, and what exactly was that plan? The easy answer is Peter was accepting his fatal illness on his own terms, and taking the steps to exit on his own volition. Followers of the case, trying to make sense of everything, believe Peter probably had family and friends strong in their faith that he would survive, rather than accepting his mortality. Thus to ease their inevitable stubbornness, he fled wherever he lived and said goodbye from afar, which in his eyes was the easiest way to do it. This would explain the stamps brought at the post office, and the likely letters mailed out from Sligo. They could have been wills or other end-of-life documents meant for his relatives or personal confidential explanations as to what he was planning. However, this theory doesn't give much of an explanation as to why he was dropping off what were probably personal belongings around Sligo purposefully out of sight from eyewitnesses and designed to avoid the Murad cameras recording all around the town. If Peter simply wanted to run off to die peacefully, why would he go through such measures to rid himself of whatever he had with him? He simply could have left them where he came from, or dumped all of them off at once in a permanent fashion. Instead, these items were hidden to continue keeping his identity an enigma. One theory regarding the purple plastic bags and the removal of his personal things is that Peter had committed a crime and whatever was in those 13 bags were incriminating pieces of evidence to that crime or set of crimes. Whether it be weapons, drugs, or even money from a criminal cash-out, those bags could have been contraband. This theory would fit in nicely with the fact that Peter intentionally avoided CCTV during his purple bag missions, 
so that police and investigators would never find the evidence that convicted him of whatever crime he might have committed. Sligo was probably far out enough from wherever the crime took place to be a safe zone for evidence release, hence why Peter chose such a random location. Other theories question if Peter's potential criminal works ran deeper than petty theft or murder, and if he was part of a bigger organisation or governmental system. This would explain his in-depth knowledge of security systems and how to avoid identification. Maybe Peter was running away from certain capture and had only a few days to rid himself of all the physical connections he had to his old life. Maybe Peter was being hunted by his own government and had limited time to say goodbye. Some even suggest Peter wasn't running away at all, but rather was meeting a comrade or co-worker at various points around Sligo, or headed to Rose's Point to meet someone, possibly with the enemy, or a contact with his agency that was meant to end all his relationships with a crooked company. After all, the Sligo bus station depot inspector mentioned Peter looked as if he was dressed to meet with someone. Of course, these types of sinister theories are weakened by the fact that Peter Bergman didn't even die from drowning. The official autopsy of Peter's corpse found he had died of cardiac arrest, not from drowning or foul play. Thus, if Peter had met trouble in Sligo, or was running away from an enemy, he wasn't killed by such a figure. While it's possible the surprise appearance of a threatening contact could have spurred a heart attack, there were zero eyewitness accounts of a second figure roaming around Rose's Point the night of Peter's death. Nor did the countless citizens who remember seeing the tall, thin man mention him talking with anyone. Rather, they mention how carefree he was, keeping to himself and seemingly unaware of his surroundings. This certainly does not sound like a man looking over his shoulder, running away from imminent danger. So why did Peter die of a heart attack? The theories aren't probably far from the truth on this one. He was obviously a very sick man, whether he knew it or not, a body can only withstand so much, and a widespread cancer to bones and internal organs would weaken the immune system enough to allow an already damaged heart to go into a rest at a slight stressor, such as high tide at midnight in a foreign location. Because Peter was found in clothes varying from the clothes he was last seen wearing, it's likely he went swimming when the beach vacated and if he got caught in a panic out in the water, he could have died prior to succumbing to the sea, and eventually was washed ashore as high tide subsided. Like all mysteries, there are plenty of holes in the theories surrounding Peter Bergman. While the entire situation in Sligo seemed calculated, Peter probably wasn't brilliant enough to be part of some secret organisation or government agent. For example, if he had planned his ruse so perfectly and meticulously, why would he have taken a taxi to somewhere cheap to stay when he arrived? When he was within walking distance from hotels from both the train and bus station, it's not like Sligo City Hotel has anything special to offer. And Peter asked too many questions about the location that wouldn't make sense if he had actually scoped it out prior to visiting. Could it have all been part of the plan, playing dumb, acting like an elderly tourist to full townsfolk and the hotel staff? Sure. But Peter also left behind DNA and sets of fingerprints, two things he would have never allowed had he been trained to enter and leave like an invisible man. And to further suggest Peter Bergman was most likely a nobody compared to a criminal, these DNA and fingerprint findings, 
or zero matches in any country in any law enforcement system. With all the theories, the confusion, and the complete lack of answers, one thing is for sure. Intentionally or not, Peter Bergman's final days threw both investigators and amateur sleuths for a loop, leaving us second-guessing the guesses, building a hypothesis for a death of somebody no one even knows. It's a task meant for no human mind to process. Before we divulge our hypothesis of Peter Bergman's unsolved identity, we want to make known our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstantial, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each video, and we do not promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. After considering the mixture of premeditated resources and innocent ignorance, we believe Peter Bergman was a man simply wanting peace, to go out on his own terms, away from family in his own way, to prevent heartbreak or controversy. Sadly, that's exactly what he ended up doing, after leaving behind an accidental bevy of circumstantial clues that makes his flee for anonymity a puzzling mystery that has escalated from local newsstands to international media. We believe Peter brought with him everything that could trace him back to his old life in a physical sense, and that is what he was distributing in the purple plastic bags, transferred from the black bag he carried when he arrived at the hotel. We cannot say for certain if the fact that CCTV never actually caught him disposing of such items was on purpose, but it's just as likely it was a coincidence than it was calculated. The stamps at the post office were probably bought to send a few letters to those he wished to disclose his final moments with, possibly sending a will to a lawyer, but overall avoiding evidence to allow police to identify him post-mortem, and therefore share his death with the rest of the world. In terms of his final day spent at Roses Point Beach, we feel Peter Bergman was probably a swimmer in his youth, spending the highest points of his life on the beach near the ocean and finding a quiet spot in Ireland was as close to paradise as he could recreate before he perished. His last movements, seemingly wandering around in the loneliness in the eyes of other beachgoers, was a result of a man coming to terms with his mortality in the moment, unsure of exactly how to react, or letting his soul rest without worry. In fact, this type of benevolent, carefree action could be described for his entire stay in Sligo, as he always appeared in neutral, relaxed, and even a little serendipitously lost. Now, was Peter Bergman attempting suicide when he got in the water at nighttime on June 16th? It's hard to say. He could have gotten in the water with the intent of never returning, and ended up with cardiac arrest when the waves proved to be too much. He could have slipped and fallen when high tide arrived and panicked, again resulting in a heart attack. It's unfair to rule his death as attempted suicide when he so clearly died as a result of his body failing him, but it could have been he was aware that his body was on the brink of demise and wanted his last seconds to be full of freedom, wading in the water like a faraway dream, a rebuilt paradise of happiness and long-felt joy. In the end though, we must treat Peter Bergman's death and lack of identification with care and with the conviction that he has a family out there looking for a lost father, a lost husband, and a lost friend. There could very well be an entire legion of people desperate to bring their loved one home, 
living without closure for a human being that meant so much to them. It is for that reason alone we want to show Peter's final days to the world, so that if there is someone out there longing for his return, they may at least learn of his fate. A decade has passed since Peter Bergman washed up on the shores of Rose's Point, and Arthur and Brian Kinsella said the Lord's Prayer over his body in the early morning light. These ten years have been difficult to process for the many that stumble upon such a unique, mind-boggling case. However, it's never too late to put a name to the face, a real name, one with weight across generations of people. As a fellow human being, it's incredibly difficult to process the fact that someone can just breathe their last breath and be unrecognizable to the rest of the world. We put so much importance on identity and our sense of self that when we encounter someone without either, it becomes a paradoxical lack of understanding. Thus, let's hope someone with a key piece of information can finally come forward, helping to identify the John Doe of Roses Point Beach, better known as Peter Bergman. This has been Cold Case Detective.